If you have your Bibles open, let us return to Luke's Gospel, to that short passage we read there. But bear in mind what we read earlier in Exodus chapter 3. We principally want to look at these verses in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 36. And the title I'd like to give to the meditation this evening is Silencing the Sadducees. Silencing the Sadducees. I have three things that I wish to highlight with you. The second thing we won't spend much time on. Most of our time will be spent on the first and the third headings. And we look Again, as always, to the Lord for his blessing that we might rightly divide the word of God. We're coming where we're going through the book of Luke and we've reached this point. And the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is drawing to a close. And he is being asked some questions He was asked a question the last time that I was here in the Sunday evening with you about rendering to Caesar the things that be Caesar's. And now we have a group called the Sadducees. And they had no real desire to to question Jesus about a theological issue because they were concerned about it and they wanted clarity They simply wanted to trap him and to tempt him and for him to say something that they could use against them. There was nothing genuine in the question that was posed to the Lord Jesus. Well, firstly, we might notice who were the Sadducees. Verse 27, we are told. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, and they asked him. Well, to put it very briefly, they were the liberal theologians of their day. We find them cited 14 times in the New Testament. And it was normal for the high priest and his family to belong unto this group called the Sadducees. If you read, for instance, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you will notice that it was the chief priest and his family that began to harass the early apostles as they proclaimed the gospel. Now, they were a group of people who would outwardly accept the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they would accept these books as being of divine origin. That was the sum, basically, of their scriptures. That was their Bible. They didn't really accept the other books in the Old Testament. They confined themselves to these five books, the first five books in the Bible. And they were ones who didn't believe in angels. 
or the supernatural or life after death. They believed to live for the here and now. And their religion was basically to get on and get on this world and maybe use religion to promote their earthly interest. They had no real desire to serve the living God and to live a life that would glorify him. The historian Josephus, he says they had no place for the providence of God. They didn't recognize the overriding, overarching providence of God, whereby he works out all things in conformity to the purpose of his will. No, that was not in their doctrine. That was not in their confession of faith at all. And they would say that all that happens is according, or all that happens to us, to individuals, is according to the good or evil that we do here upon the earth. To them, there was no life after death. To them, life was everything. And they were to make the best of the life that they had. That was their philosophy. That was their theology. And as you might expect, to them, there was no such thing as hell. No such thing. Once you're dead, you're dead. It's all over. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if you use religion to further your cause, then that's fine. There's no problem, because when you die, it's all over. Well, we don't need to be theologians to realize that there are Sadducees among us today. There are Sadducees among us in the professing Christian church. I'm not going to name denominations and I'm not going to name individuals, but you will know yourself there are high church men. And as Mr. Spurgeon would say, they're like men dressed in doll's clothing. And they have the, the image of being devout and being religious But they deny all the things that we find in the Bible. All the things that the Sadducees denied, they would deny. The Sadducees' name may well have dropped from our vocabulary. But the Sadducean spirit is among us. And even there may well be... Sadducees here this evening. We are ones who look at the Word of God and we believe it. We seek to live by it. And when God speaks in His Word, we recognize this is not the Word of man, it is the Word of God. And we find many things in the Word of God that the modern day Sadducee will not accept. We could think of the the ongoing uh, problems and difficulties some sections of the professing Christian church are having with uh, human sexuality. To us, transgenderism is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And anyone who is taken up with it, 
It's really a mental health issue. And we are extremely sorry for them. But the Bible is clear. It's either male or female. And we cannot change. But many sections in the Christian church are trying to embrace this modern transgenderism and square it with the word of God. Impossible. We could think also about the LGBT or whatever they call themselves today. Many in the professing Christian church are trying to keep to the traditional teachings of the the Bible, yet accommodate same-sex marriage. It is ridiculous. The Bible's clear on these matters. And I do believe that to my congregation that I'm speaking here to, I do believe that all of us would agree. I have no problem here with people speaking against what I have said because we find these things in the Word of God would be exactly the same. How many here doubt what's going to happen after they die? How many are just like atheists who think that when life is over, it is over, and it's all over? That's what the Sadducees believed. How many people here do not believe in a supernatural God? We believe in a God who spoke and brought the world into being at a word and at a command. Now this is supernatural. But that's the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible has revealed himself in many supernatural acts throughout the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament. God is supernatural. And God is the one who is able to do things that we cannot possibly do. But that's the God of the Bible. But that's not the God that the Sadducees believed in. The Sadducees only, they said they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. And they rejected the other books in the Old Testament. They did not recognize that they came with divine authority also. And therefore, they were selective in what scriptures they believed in and received. We might have a completed Bible, and we might say that we believe the Bible. But do we really believe the Bible? Do we believe the Bible when it tells us that we must be born again? Oh, some would say that's, that's enthusiasm. That was okay for the, the early church, but that's not for us. But if we're to understand the Bible, it's for every single one of us. We must know this wonderful, glorious, unique, divine experience of being born again by the Spirit of God. We must know this. Why must we know it? Because by nature we are dead in trespasses and sins. And by nature we do not have the life of God in us. 
And it was necessary in the Old Testament, and it's necessary in the New Testament, and it is necessary in the 21st century, and it will be necessary for as long as this world continues as it is. We cannot see and we will not know or enter into the kingdom of God unless we have this glorious experience. We must be born again. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said to that man who was steeped in religion. You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Nicodemus, a master in Israel, one who was teaching, we might say in modern words, he was teaching divinity students. Yet he did not know the ABC of believing at all himself. He was a stranger to this, to this wonderful divine activity whereby he is born again by the Spirit of God. Friends, this is not for enthusiasm. This is not for those who are fundamentalist, if you might like to call them. This is the very ABC of saving Christianity. We must know this. And we must ask ourselves, do we know it? Are there anyone here that does not believe in the doctrine of hell? It's a very, very solemn doctrine. You'll go to many, many churches and you'll never hear the word mentioned, never mind the doctrine. It's a difficult doctrine to preach on. It's a difficult doctrine, subject to preach on and to preach lovingly upon it. But we look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our great example. We look to that one who came from heaven in order to seek and to save that which was lost. And what does he speak of? He speaks of the horrors of hell. He speaks of that horrible condition whereby we are lost forever and forever in hell, in torments. He speaks lovingly and graciously about it. Why does he speak about it? He speaks about it that we might not find ourselves there and instead that we might avail ourselves of that glorious, full and free salvation that he has secured by his life and by his death. He's our pattern. We must walk in his footsteps and we must realize what he says about the world to come is true. No one has ever came from heaven. No one, no religious teacher has ever come from heaven. No prophet has ever come from heaven but the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows that world that is to come. And he tells you tonight, friends, to flee from the wrath to come to be in Christ and to have your sins forgiven, not to be steeped in religion, but to have Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what he says to you. But there will be Sadducees among us who say, oh, this is too much, this is too much. I don't want to hear about this. I want to go somewhere else. I want to have some comfort. That's the spirit of the Sadducee. I'm paraphrasing. But Spurgeon said on one occasion, Go to where you're troubled. 
don't go to a place where you are lulled into sleep. Don't go to a place where you'll hear smooth things. Go to a place where someone will declare unto you the word of God. And go to that place where you will be warned that you must repent and believe the gospel and that you must have your sins forgiven in order that you might escape that dreadful place that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he would say. If you want to go to a place, friends, where you'll hear smooth talking, go to the Scottish Parliament. Go to the politicians. Go to the entertainment world. Go to the comedians. Go to the newspapers. They'll tell you the things that you want to hear. But the preacher must tell you the things that you don't want to hear, but you must hear. And you must respond positively to them. We don't have Sadducees. But their spirit is not dead. It's still among us. And they didn't believe in these things in the supernatural. But we do. And we believe what we find in the word of God. And we tremble. The word of God is to make us tremble. It's not to pat us in the back and tell us everything's alright. It's not to say to us, do your best and God will receive you. It's telling you something else. You need a saviour. You need one who has, who has fulfilled God's law. You need one who has done this thing for you on your behalf. You need a substitute. That substitute is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Secondly, briefly as I said, secondly, what was their question? Well, I'm not going to go through it. You basically know the question. It's, it's not a real question. It's a hypothetical question. A man marries a woman. He dies childless. And according to the law of Moses, if that happens, his brother was to, was to marry his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Well, that happened twice, three times, seven times. And what happens? They all die childless and then the woman dies childless also. No child. What's going to happen in the resurrection? You can just see them sort of sniggering. Yeah, this will catch them out. What's going to happen in the resurrection? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They simply wanted to catch the Lord Jesus Christ out. But thirdly, we want to look at the Saviour's response. As you might expect, this incident is recorded not just in Luke's Gospel, but it's also recorded in Matthew's and Mark's Gospel. And there is a slight variation. There's a slight addition in Mark and Matthew. Before Jesus uh, uh, answers as we find it here, he says something else to the Sadducees in Mark's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel. And let me quote from Mark chapter 12, verse 24. And Jesus answering said unto them, 
Do ye not therefore do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? And Matthew says much the same thing. And then we have what is recorded for us in Luke's gospel. So when Jesus begins to answer them, he says basically two things. They err. They err because they do not know the scriptures. They don't know the scriptures that they profess to receive. You don't know them. You might be able to quote them verbatim. You might be able to look them up, but you don't know them. You don't know the doctrine. You don't know the truth that these scriptures proclaim. And neither the power of God. You don't know that you're serving a supernatural God. To you, God is not powerful. He's not supernatural. So how does he answer then uh, the Sadducees? Well, first of all, verse 34. The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, he's basically saying marriage as we know it is only for this present time. It's only for this world. And in the resurrection world, in the new world that is coming, there will be no marriage as we know it. None whatsoever. In that sense, we shall be like the angels. The angels don't marry. And we will just be like them. We will not marry. We might well ask ourselves then, what is the purpose of marriage here in this world? Why do we have marriage? Well, we go back to the very beginning. And we come to Genesis Chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Here we have our first father, the pinnacle of creation, the king of creation. The whole world, in some sense, has been made for him. He named all the animals. But after that, there was something missing for him. And what are we told? I will make him a help meet for him. And he made Eve. He created Eve from Adam. And therefore, the first thing that marriage is for is for companionship. Adam, in some sense, was not complete. He needed a suitable person, a suitable helpmeet. And that was to be found in Eve and in Eve alone. In order that he might be truly fulfilled. In order that he might have someone who would be a companion to him all his days. But that's not the only purpose. That's, one, that's the main thing we, we acknowledge. But there is at least another purpose in marriage. And we will go then to, again to Genesis, this time after the flood. And we notice what God said to, to Noah. Here was a new world. Here was Noah, his wife, 
his three sons and their three wives. There they were. The, whole, the old world was destroyed. Now a new world. And they were the beginning of that new world. And God said to Noah, And you be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. So what are we finding here? We're finding that marriage is primarily companionship and then it is for procreation. Go forth and multiply. That's what marriage in this world is for. At least two reasons for marriage in this world. But in the world to come, there will be no marriage. None whatsoever. And we might ask ourselves, why? Well, it's obvious. It's absolutely obvious. There'll be no death in the world that is to come. There'll be no need to go forth and multiply. As we know, we live in a world of sin and death. And death is common. It's, we cannot avoid it. We'll all go the way of all the earth. And that's why we must have marriage, companionship and procreation in this world in order that the world might be occupied. But in the world to come, none of that. No death. Therefore, no need to multiply. We might well ask ourselves then concerning this world that is to come, the resurrection world, what kind of relationships will we have? We really don't know. We really don't know much about eternity. We know, friends, here, many of us know that we have wonderful marriages. Not perfect by any manner of means, but wonderful. We enjoy our spouses. That is true for many of us. We have wonderful relationships and we bless God for them. But what about our relationships in the world to come? Shall we recognize each other? These are some of the questions that we might well ask ourselves. Well, I think that question is fairly easy to answer. I do believe that we shall recognize each other. And we only have to go, for instance, to the, the Mount of Transfiguration. There when Jesus was there and he was revealed in his second coming glory. And who was with him? Moses and Elijah. And we're inclined to believe that the apostles who were looking on were able to recognize Moses and Elijah. So I do believe that we shall be able to recognize each other in that world that is to come. But what about the kind of relationships we will have? As we've said, there'll be no need for marriage. How can we answer it? Can we answer it? Well, I put it to you like this, in the form of a question. If many of us and many people have wonderful marriage relationships here upon this sin-cursed world, do you think that our relationship in the world to come will be worse or better? Think on it. Heaven. Glory, Christ, the place that he's prepared for his people, 
Do you think, therefore, that his people who now in the sinful world will enjoy wonderful relationships, do you think that relationship somehow is going to be soured or worse in the world that is to come? Surely, friends, the very essence of heaven is that any relationship that we have here now will be better, surely, in that world that is to come. Do you think that God is going to disappoint his people? Nonsense. We don't know exactly what it shall be like, but surely we can trust God that it will not in any sense be less than what we enjoy now. We might want to spend a moment looking again at verse 35. The words of the Lord Jesus, But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now a light look at this verse might, might, might suggest to us that Jesus is teaching that only the righteous shall know the resurrection life. Or to put it another way, is Jesus teaching us here that it's only the righteous that shall be resurrected. What does the Bible say? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that everyone shall be resurrected. On that great day, everyone, everyone that ever lived shall be resurrected on that day. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, in his prophecy, he talks about a general resurrection. In verse 2 of chapter 12, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's clear. There's going to be a resurrection, we might say, of the just and the unjust. Earlier, in John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ says exactly the same thing. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Again, it's clear. Jesus is talking about the resurrection of all, Christian and non-Christian, believer and unbeliever. Paul used this argument when he was seeking to defend himself before the council in Jerusalem. And the council was made up of Pharisees who accepted the resurrection and the Sadducees who did not. And he used this argument in order to divide his opponents. And in Acts chapter 24 verse 15, he talks about his life and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead 
both of the just and unjust. He's teaching them that he believes the day will come, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, a general resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. The Pharisees basically said, Amen, we believe this. The Sadducees says, No, we don't believe it. Therefore, they were divided, the very thing that the Apostle Paul wanted to do. But the Lord Jesus Christ does not use that Old Testament text that I quoted from Daniel to speak to the Sadducees. Why not? Because they did not accept the book of Daniel. But instead he goes right back to Moses, to that passage we read in Moses in Exodus chapter 3. There the Lord Jesus Christ refers to that incident when Moses encountered God at the burning bush. And when God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And from that verse, the, the Lord Jesus Christ was proving to the Sadducees who said that they accepted that scriptures, that that scripture proved the doctrine of the resurrection. Now you may well be asking me this evening, how does that doctrine prove, the do how does that text prove the doctrine of the resurrection? Well, it is... And I'm not going to give anyone a, a grammar lesson here. But it is by the, te by the tense of the verb. What does God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham was dead for at least 300 years when God said this to Moses. He was smoldering in his grave, but God said, I am the God of Abraham. He may be dead. He may have gone into eternity. He may have left this scene of time. He did. But I'm still his God. Nothing has changed. He may be dead as far as the human world is concerned. But as far as God is concerned, he's alive. And it's from that text that he proves the doctrine of the resurrection. And he highlights the fact that they say they accept these scriptures, but they don't know what these scriptures mean at all. Friends, the doctrine of the resurrection is true. We have the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And the very fact that he is alive forevermore. 
guarantees the resurrection of every single one of us. I want to ask you this evening, as we close, how will you fear on that day? How will you fear? You know the atheist. You hear about the atheist. He likes to talk about how he doesn't believe in God. He knows God. He doesn't want to admit it. He seeks to suppress that truth that's in him. And he's living a life of delusion. He thinks, he hopes that this life is all it is. And then when he dies, it's all over. There's nothing there. But the Bible tells us clearly there is something there. There is life after death. And what's more, you know it. It's part of your DNA, if you like. It's part of your human nature. It's part of the life of God that he has put in you. You know it. You know there's going to be a day when you shall rise. You have been made for eternity. And how will you fare on that day when you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ calling you forth out of your grave? How will you stand? How will you fare? These are serious things that we need to consider because that day is nearer now than it has ever been. Friends, you need Christ. You need to have him. He needs to be your Lord and Savior. You need to close in with him. Because to be called forth from your grave, whether you smolder in the grave or whether you're burnt in cremation, It matters little. Here's the power of God. It's a supernatural God. And your body shall be reconstituted. And you will stand before King Jesus on that day. And that day you want to stand before him. As one who knows him as Savior and Lord. And not as a judge and destroyer. And we're happy to tell you. This is the day of grace. The only way that you can fare well on that day is to have him as Lord and Savior. How can I have him? What must I do? You must run to the Lord Jesus. You must call out to him. You must have him. And do not rest until you do have him. That's what you must do. You must seek the Lord whilst he may be found. And you'll find he is Nearer to than you than you can possibly imagine. Come therefore. Come. Embrace him. Call upon him. He silenced the Sadducees. Let us therefore come to him. Amen. And may the Lord bless his word to us.